Right. Well, uh, in my younger days, in my younger days, I did not have the most stellar driving record. Anybody have a rough driving record those first few years? Anybody still got a rough driving record? Anybody out there? Okay, I, I feel you, I feel you. Uh, I had racked up five speeding tickets before my 18th birthday. Yeah. Needless to say, my, my driver's insurance cost was through the roof, all right? It was through the roof, and I would love to blame it on the fact that I learned how to drive in Atlanta, and I got my driver's license in Atlanta, and so I was just always keeping up with the flow of traffic. I was just keeping up with the flow of traffic, officer. I was keeping up. Why'd you pick my car out? Was keeping up with the flow of traffic. But the truth was, I was a reckless driver, driving way too fast, but nothing slowed me down quite like the day that my dad said, son... I'm not paying your driver's insurance anymore. You're paying it. How many people know when mom and dad stop paying the bills, life gets real? Come on. You know I'm talking about life gets real. Andrew and I talked to like graduating seniors, college, whatever, and they're like, I can't wait to move out of my house. I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm, okay, sure, all right, until life gets real. Okay, so that's that's what happened to me. So anyway, I remember the uh, the first time that I went to court for a a traffic ticket, okay? Uh, I walked in, I sat down. I was was nervous, but at the same time pumped because I've seen every episode of Law & Order, so this was my first chance to really get in the courtroom and really try my knowledge and what I knew. And so uh, I walked in, I sat down, they called my name, and uh, I went up in front of the judge. I could have just paid the ticket. I could have just, like, long, you know, weeks beforehand, I could have just paid the ticket, but I wanted to try and talk my way out of my ticket. For some of you, that's hard to believe who know me. I know that I would try to talk my way out of it, but uh, that was my plan. I'm going to go before the judge, and I'm going to talk my way out of this. So, um, so I go before the judge, and uh, they read my charges, you know, and um, they ask me how I want to plead, you know, how you want to plead, you know, and, and uh, then the judge explains to me that I have three options. Now, some of you guys are more familiar with standing in front of a judge than I am, but uh, he gives me three options. He says, you can plead not guilty. And if you plead not guilty, then you'll come back at, a fir- at another date that we set, and the officer will be here, and we'll have a trial. But, he says, if you do that, you also, and you lose, you're probably also going to have to pay some trial costs. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he explained somehow that that had, you know, a little caveat to it. He said, I could plead guilty. You can plead guilty, and uh, you can pay the ticket, you can pay the court costs, and just be done with it and go on. Or, he said, I could plead nolo contendere. Anybody ever heard of no low contendere? Let me see your hand if you heard of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I hadn't either, all right? So it says, you can plead no low contendere, and uh, I'd never heard of it, so he goes on to explain it to me, and here's what it said. Here's what it meant, is that by pleading no low contendere, I was accepting guilt, but the ticket would not go on my insurance. Since it was my first ticket or whatever, I could plead no low contendere that year. You can do it once a year, and uh, it wouldn't go on, it wouldn't go on my insurance. I'd still have to pay but it wouldn't, it wouldn't go on my insurance. That was a no-brainer. And I, 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 could, I, could, I could pay the ticket but not have to, you know, put it on my insurance. So with everything in me, confident, like, the, like a man who had graduated law school, I looked at the judge and said, Your Honor, I plead no low contendere. Like I, you know, really knew what I was doing. And, uh, and so that's, that's how it happened. And so I walked out of that courthouse that day feeling like a free man. I mean, I walked out of that courthouse feeling like I had escaped, uh, I don't know, I don't know the justice. I don't know what it is, but I felt like a free man. And obviously I'm playing it up a little bit. 
But I can tell you honestly what I did not feel. I didn't feel worried. I didn't feel bad. And I did not feel concerned about my speeding ticket because I did not have to pay the consequences unless you consider traffic school a consequence, which it is pretty bad. But I didn't have to pay any consequences. So I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel guilty, which is probably why I got my next speeding ticket three months later. Right? Probably why that happened. Well, we're in the fourth week of a series of teachings called The Happiness Myth, where we're taking a journey through the book of Judges in the Old Testament. It's a book in the Old Testament. And we're getting a front row seat to what happens when we choose to live according to the happiness myth, which is just the belief that my way, everybody say my way. My way way is the best way to be happy. That's the happiness myth. We've believed for thousands of years, generation after generation, and my way is the best way to be happy. And each week we're learning again that God's way, not my way, but God's way, everybody say God's way, God's way is the best way to the best life. And so today I want to talk about no low contendere, all right? I want to talk about guilt without consequences. And specifically, we're going to look at Judges chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you can go Judges chapter 6. If you actually have one of those old devices that has paper in it, like an actual book, then you can mark Judges 6 and you can mark 2 Corinthians 7 because we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 7. But I want us to talk today, we're going to keep it very simple, but I want us to talk today about the difference between regret and repentance. The difference between regret and repentance because there is a, there's a difference, all right? So Judges chapter 6, you want to flip over there. We'll be there in a second. Every parent in the room knows the difference between when your child is sorry that they got caught and when they're sorry for what they did. Come on, parents, you know the difference, right? And uh, I, I think as God's children, we do the same thing sometimes, don't we? With our Heavenly Father, we do the same things. There are sometimes that we're just sorry we got caught, and there are sometimes we're actually sorry for what we did. I have a, a few solid rules in my house. If you've been around here for long at all, you've heard me talk about them. You've heard Andrew and I talk about them in, in our marriage uh, sermons and things like that. But there's a few solid rules. We keep it pretty loose. We do not run a super tight ship around the Isaac's house. Pretty loose house. Uh, but there are a few non-negotiables with us for the Isaac's family, all right? And uh, one of them you've heard me talk about is honesty. We value honesty so much in our house. We value it so much that we've told our kids that if you tell me the truth before I find out the truth, you won't get in trouble. If whatever you did, if you tell me the truth before I find out the truth, then you're not going to get in trouble. That's how much we value honesty. We may have to adapt that later on in life. I don't know, but for the time being, that's, that's the rule. Another rule we have in our house is no cheap shots. We have hard conversations. We're honest about our frustrations. We're honest about the way we feel, but we don't hurt on purpose. Because love doesn't hurt on purpose. So I'm going to hurt you. It's going to be on accident. I'm going to make you cry, but I didn't mean to. I'm not going to take a cheap shot and hurt you on purpose. That's another one that's a big, uh, it's a big deal to us. But if you were to ask Andrea and the kids, like, what is the one thing that, that dad just is like, is like crazy about? Like, what, what is that one thing that he goes, it gives the most speeches about and gives the most rants about? They would tell you it's apologizing apologizing. I am big on apologizing. We are non-negotiably going to be a house that apologizes. There's nothing more infuriating than somebody who places blame and won't accept responsibility for what they did. So I, we're going 
to apologize. How many people know somebody that it doesn't matter what they do or how guilty they are, they are not going to apologize? How many people know somebody like that? Let me see your hand. Yeah, I can't hang out with people like that. They, give, they drive me crazy, right? So that's, that's a rule in our, in our house. And so there's a lot of good reasons, but this isn't a sermon on apologizing. We'll save that for another time. But I have told, and we have told our family, it's a rule that we have in our house. If you apologize, we forgive, we move on. I'm not going to bring it back up. We're not going to keep fighting about it. When you apologize, it's over. We're going to move on. And this worked for a while in our house. But now all the women in my life have learned that an apology ends the conversation and we move on because that's the rule. When you apologize, you move on. And so what will happen is now in a very insincere manner based on my judgment of what's happening, very quickly we'll go, the women in my life who I love dearly will say, you're right, I'm sorry. And I will want to go on and continue to, you know, give some fatherly wisdom. And like, like for example, the, the, the girls will take popcorn upstairs. They'll get a bowl of popcorn. They'll take it upstairs. And the only thing I can reason is instead of wanting to eat it, they just wanted to throw it upstairs and spread it as far as they can. It was not to eat. It was to decorate. And so I'll walk up the steps and I will see this decoration of popcorn and I'll say, girls, what? and before I even get the words out of my mouth, Sadie or Nora will go, you're right, daddy, we're sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even done talking yet. You're right, daddy, no, I'm sorry. And so I'll think, well, you know, they need some instruction here. Now, girls, listen, here's why we don't, but daddy, we said we're sorry. Daddy, we said we're sorry. They're taking advantage of, uh, of my system, right? Taking as much system. Sadie took it to a whole nother level the other day. Um, she hit her sister, and so I said, Sadie, she, I said, Sadie, get upstairs, go lay in your bed, I'll be there in a second, you're going to get a spanking. So I let her sit up there for a few minutes, really build the suspense, you know how it is, parents, come on, and, uh, and so I go upstairs to give her a spanking. She's laying on the bed, she's been crying, I walk in the room, I haven't taken two steps in the room, and she says, Daddy, I want you to know something, first of all, I'm sorry. <laughs> Will you forgive me? And before I got to say the answer to that question she said but I want you to know one more thing while I was waiting I talked to God and he said he forgave me so you should too <laughs> I ain't even right man she just played the God card on her preacher dad I said well say to God forgives you and I do too but you're still getting a spanking but why daddy God forgave me I said but you're still getting a spanking right so that's kind of what's happened uh in our house well I, I think as Christians honestly uh, we kind of do the same thing with God. That, that early on, we accepted this incredible grace from God, and then we learned that if we apologize, it's over and you, and you move on. But maybe, maybe we're not really wanting to repent of our sin. Maybe, we'll talk about that. Maybe we just want, maybe we just feel bad about getting caught or what we did and I think this is important for everybody in the room because as long as we keep believing that our way is the best way to be happy, we're never going to leave our cycle of sin. We're never going to leave our cycle of sin. God will just be a friend at the police station who can get us out of speeding tickets, right? And, uh, but if, if we can learn to truly repent, turn from our sin, and follow God's ways for our life, we can experience freedom. 
We can experience fulfillment and joy. We can have a joy-filled life. And I want that, and God wants that for us. He wants us to turn from our sin, walk away from it, leave it, and and live a life of freedom and fulfillment and joy. And so that's what we're going to try to figure out today, very simply, is that difference between regret and repentance and how we can have that. So Judges chapter 6, start with verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, um, then is, or the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. This is a cycle we've been seeing over and over again, right? If you haven't been here uh, for this series, this is pretty much how every chapter starts. Evil, the, Lord, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, martyrs from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat. They took all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel, verse 6, was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When they cried out to the Lord, uh, when they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, interesting phrase, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites, and he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But, but you have not listened to me. Now, this is not the point of the message, but I think it's worth really quickly just going back and revisiting. If you haven't been here, we said the very first week we read from Numbers where God told like these people's great, great, great grandparents, when you get into the land, drive everybody out, destroy all the idols. And we talked that first week that God doesn't give us his instruction and his ways to bother us, to restrict us, to make life boring, but that God's ways really are the best way. Because God says, if you will go in and drive out the people and destroy the idols, you're gonna live a blessed life. I'll keep blessing you generation after generation after generation. That's what will happen. He said, but if you don't, then the people that you leave there and the idols that you leave there will be a constant thorn in your eye and a constant temptation to you. That's what God said. And so we said that first week that God doesn't give us his ways because he's like, well, let me see how much fun I can zap out of their life. God gives us his ways because he wants to bless us and bless our kids and bless our grandkids. He wants us to live a fulfilled, uh, best life. But we're so sure that our way is the best way, just like Israel. We do what seems right in our eyes. And so now great, 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 great grandchildren are now being driven into the hills to hide, starving, and everything they have is being taken by people that could have been gone had they obeyed God's ways. They didn't do it. And they're paying the price for that. And they pay the price over and over again, almost every chapter because of what we read in chapter one. And if you and I will buy in and believe, truly believe that God's ways are the best ways, we will not have to deal, and our kids and our grandkids will not have to deal with so many of the temptations and the thorns in our life because we decided to live according to God's way. But they didn't. 
So now this is, this is where they are. And I think it's interesting that God's first response to the people crying out for help is not to send a savior. He sends a sermon. He doesn't send a savior, he sends a sermon because sometimes before God saves us, he wants to make sure that we know what we're being saved from. In other chapters, in chapter three, in chapter four, in chapter five even, when the people cried out to God for help, he just sent a rescuer and they rescued the people. They were a judge and that's actually why it's called judges. He would send these people. And he's about to send Gideon in just a second. But this time he says, you know what? We keep going through this cycle over and over and over again. So before I send them a savior, I'm gonna send them a sermon because I want them to understand what's happening. And so this prophet explains how good God is and how they have not listened. And let me just paraphrase what the prophet said to the people. The prophet said to the people, how is that working for you? Like what you're doing, how is that working for you? Look around and ask yourself, is it working? Do you like your life? Do you like where it is? Do you still believe that your ways are the best ways? How is that working for you? And I want you to know that God never wants to rub our sin in our face. But he will allow us to stare at it for long enough to realize that it cannot save us and that we need saving from it, right? And so sometimes we pray for God to send a miracle, a drastic miracle, or ask for a savior or something to get us out of the mess that we're in And he doesn't send help right away because sometimes God wants us to look at our sin long enough to realize that it didn't help us and it didn't save us and it's not really what we want for our lives. Sometimes. Maybe you find yourself in that place today. Like, Jason, I I cried out to God for help, but he still hasn't helped me. And I'm not saying this is the the reason 100% of the time, but there are some times that God will let us have to deal with our consequences a little while longer so that we will be reminded one more time that my ways are not the best way to be happy, right? My ways are not the best way. So for Israel, their sorrow, in chapter six, for Israel, their sorrow is just skin deep. It's just skin deep. They feel bad because their choices have given them bad results and bad consequences, And we said last week that God will use misery to bring us back to him sometimes. But he doesn't just want us to regret our consequences. He wants us to regret our sin against God. It's not just that I'm in a bad spot. It's that I have sinned against God. And I've separated me and God. And I've let sin come between us. And God wants us to repent and to turn away from our sin. I want to read you something. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. Here's what it says. It says, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience, which that's a good place to stop and just say, wow, God wants us to experience sorrow. Yes, he does. The kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin, leads us away from sin, and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which is what we've been talking about, it's that skin-deep sorrow. It's that regret for consequences. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. 
Verse 11, just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such, e- uh, such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such readiness to punish wrong. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. So worldly sorrow, according to Paul, is just skin deep. It's only skin deep. It's sorrow over the consequences, not the sin itself. In other words, if there had been no consequences, there would be no sorrow. There's no sorrow for how our sin grieves God and violates our relationship with him. And as soon as the consequences go away, usually the behavior comes back because our heart is not disgusted with our sin. It's sad because of our circumstances. Now, I believe there's two types of people in the room today. I think there's, there's, two, there's two distinct groups of people. The first group of people, you've repented, you've given your life to God, you've given your past to God, and, and you, you serve him. But you still regret the mistakes for the choices you made in your past. I think that's one group. You still live with this heavy burden and this regret of your past mistakes and your sin. The second group, you feel bad when you sin. You know that God has plans for your life, but you're not convinced that God's ways are better than your ways. So to ease guilt and and to ease your conscience, you react with remorse and you try to make adjustments in your life, but you've never really repented for your sins because you're not sure if you want to give them up. And can I just stop for a second and say, that's okay. Like, you know, you don't have to serve God if you don't want to, right? Like, I want you to know that. Like, God loves you and he wants you to serve him and follow him. But like, if you're doing this because your mom's making you or you're doing this because you never had a choice or whatever it is, like, I want you to know that you don't have to act sorry if you're not sorry. You don't have to serve God if you don't want to, okay? Okay. So there's two groups of people. There's this group that we regret what we've done, even though God has forgiven us and we truly have repented. And there's this other group that we act like we regret what we've done, but we're not totally sure that God's ways are the best ways. Well, I got a few minutes left today. And so based on what we read in 2 Corinthians 7, I wanna give you two things, super simple, keeping it super simple today. I wanna give you two things that'll help us in dealing with regret and repentance. All right, this is the first one. It's a long one. You may just want to snap a picture with your phone or it's going to take you a while to write. Here's the first thing I think we need to learn today. If I find myself repeating the same sins at the same speed with the same regularity, there's a good chance I don't hate my sin. I just hate the way I feel after I sin. That's a long one. Let's read it one more time. If I find myself repeating the same sins at the same speed with the same regularity, there is a good chance I don't hate my sin, I just hate the way I feel after I sin. Okay? Now, please hear what I'm saying this morning. I am not saying that you get to a place where you don't sin anymore. Because I've been serving God now, uh, well, I just turned 32, so 16 years, and there is still sin in my life, and I still struggle, and I still battle, and so sin is there, it will be there, I have the opportunity to pick it up every morning when I walk out of my door. So I'm not saying that you will get to a point where you don't sin anymore. So if you're here and you think, well, if I could just serve God a little bit longer, I won't sin anymore. That's not true. That's not how it happens. 
But I do believe that as we are being transformed by the hope of Jesus, I do believe that we should be able to look at our lives and say, at least I'm not sinning the same way at the same speed with the same regularity. Because I am, and God is helping me, I am moving away from my sin. See, repentance Repentance means to turn away from sin. Repentance does not mean to say, I'm sorry. That's part of it. But repentance is, I'm sorry, and I'm turning away from my sin. Some of you have people in your family that have hurt you and keep apologizing, but you don't accept their apology because they just keep hurting you. Because you don't really feel like that they are repentant for what they have done. I understand. That's exactly what repentance means. It's to say, I'm sorry. And it is to turn from sin no matter what it takes. Because that's what Paul said in verse 11, right? Verse 11 says, just see what this godly sorrow produced in you, such earnestness, such concern to clear yourselves, whatever it takes, right? Such indignation, such alarm. Listen, if this is where it is, then I'm gonna live over here. I mean, I just, I, 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 just any alarm, any, anything, right? Such longing to see me, such zeal, such readiness to punish wrong, not other people's wrong, my, my wrong. So, so Paul says that godly sorrow that leads to repentance says, I'm sorry for my sin, and to the best of my ability and with God's help, I'm going to turn away from my sin and get as far away from it as I can and do whatever it takes, do whatever it takes. I could give a lot of different examples I don't have time to give a lot of different examples, but can I just give you one this morning? I just want to give you one because as a pastor, I see this a lot. There are times when someone in a relationship, in a marriage relationship, will uh, either have an affair with somebody outside of their relationship, an emotional affair with somebody out of their relationship, they'll cross some lines or some boundaries in somebody outside of their, with somebody outside of their marriage, whatever scenario you want to draw out there. By God's grace, they'll decide that they want to work it out and they want to reconcile it. And in that moment, whoever the spouse is that has fallen usually has such passion and such zeal and such energy to make things right, which is great and helps early on. But there are scary, like, there, there are a number of times when myself or Andrea and I are working or trying to help a couple like this, and the person who has done wrong does not feel a, uh, a, a, a drive, an eagerness to get themselves away from the person that they fell with or struggled with. Does that make sense? So we'll be talking and they'll say, well, you know, I work there or they're my friend or I just don't think that I, I mean, I just couldn't never talk to them again. And we'll say in those moments, listen, you're trying to save your marriage. You're trying to turn from your sin. You're trying to get away. And so if you, like the Bible says, if you've got to cut off your left arm to make it into heaven, let's go to heaven with one arm. If you've got to lose a friend, if you've got to find a new job, if you've got to change a phone number, if you've got to get rid of the computer, if you've got to take all the TVs out of your house, if you've got to get rid of credit cards, whatever it takes, cut off both arms, both legs, and, and an ear, if, if you can just roll into heaven, we'll take it. Okay? Listen, that, that is that godly sorrow that leads us to repentance away from sin and says whatever it takes. And so I, 
and I'm not throwing stones because I have issues in my life, but I get very nervous when I'm talking to a husband or a wife who has had this sin come up in their life, and they say, well, we want to work it out, but I just don't know if I can remove myself from fill in the blank, whatever it is, because I don't hear in their voice this feeling of, I will get as far away from my sin as I need to, okay? That's just one example. We could keep going, but that's one example, okay? And so... Repentance just wants to be right with God no matter what it takes. Regret usually just wants a drastic miracle. Hey, listen, yeah, I screwed up. I just really need God to save it. Hey, yeah, I screwed up. I really just need God to keep me out of jail. Hey, yeah, I screwed up. I just need, I just need a drastic miracle. I'm crying out to God. God, help me. I need a drastic miracle, God. Come on, I need a drastic miracle. Come on, come through again, God. And God is so good that most of the time he just does. That's what's so crazy about God. He just does because he's our heavenly father and I'm an earthly father and like I don't put my kids on a strike count. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah, you blew it when you were seven. You're done. Get out of here. I just keep coming through again and again. I'm, I'm the soft parent, so I say no candy after dinner and then they do like one good thing and I'm like, okay, here, you know. And I have a heavenly father who, who keeps bailing me out over and over and over again. But can I tell you something? God wants me to repent and to turn from my sin and to get away from it. He doesn't want to have to, even though he does, just keep bailing me out and bailing me out and bailing me out. So number one, if I find myself repeating the same sins at the same speed with the same regularity, there's a good chance I don't hate my sin. I just hate the way I feel after I sin. Okay, that's a long one. Ask yourself this question. Why are you sorry? When it comes to your sin, why are you sorry? And if there's not something in you that says, and I know that like, it's not so clean cut, like yes, we feel bad for our consequences. Like, I get that there are all sorts of emotions involved. But at some level, if I'm not sorry because I have grieved God, then I, it's probably not godly sorrow. There has to be something in there that says, I'm sorry because I grieved God, not just hurt my life. Okay, number two, once I repent, once I have repentance, once I repent for my sin, there's no need to regret. Once I repent, there's no need for regret. So this is that second group of people I was talking about. Some of you truly have repented and you've turned away from your sin and you've gotten away from it. And every time I talk to you, you just keep bringing up all the dumb things you did in your past. It's like trophies or something. Or, or, you, or you feel terrible. You can't move on past all the things that you did, all the relationships you lost, all the pain that you caused. And I understand that because there are consequences in our lives. So maybe your sin was what we talked about earlier and you don't get to see your kids anymore. And so that always haunts you. I understand, but can I tell you something? The Bible says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if I have truly repented from my sin, somehow, some way, I've gotta understand that every dumb, stupid, sinful thing I did in my past was just something that God in some sovereign way used to get me to where I am right now and he's still doing great things in my life and he's used all of my sin and my mistakes to get me to this place. And so I've got no need to be sorry. I've got no need to regret because I have repented and I have left my sin and gone the other way. In uh, 2 Samuel 12, 
I don't have time to get into it, but David sins with Bathsheba and uh, kills her husband and has a baby, and it's just like TMZ times 10. I mean, it's like scandalous, okay? And, uh, and so Nathan the prophet shows up and, and tells David, like, um, and, and, and kind of uses a parable, and David realizes, even though he didn't at first, he realizes he sinned, and in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, it says, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. David slept with somebody who wasn't his wife, got her pregnant, killed her husband. The sins stack up. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. You're forgiven. You just said, you just repented. You realized you grieved God, you repented. The Lord forgives you. He goes on the list and a bunch of verses that there's going to be some consequences. The baby's going to die. There's going to be several things that happened. And so David goes into a time of mourning. He rips his clothes. He shaves his head. He fasts. He, he, he mourns. And the people who are around him are saying, man, I've never seen somebody mourn like this. And, and so then the, he's praying for the baby to be healed for seven days. But then the baby dies and his employees, his servants are afraid to go tell him that the baby's dead because they've never seen somebody grieve and mourn like he has the past seven days. And they say, well, if we go tell him the baby's died, he'll kill us because he's, I've never seen him this low. And so they go. And in verse 19, when David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. He said, is the child dead? Yes, they replied, he's dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes, went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. And after that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. That's what he says. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. Verse 22, David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he's dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. He slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And David named him Solomon. And look at the last line, and the Lord loved that child. The religious side of us that says, would say, nothing that David and Bathsheba ever did together would ever be blessed by God. That's not what God said. God said they sinned. They shouldn't have done it. They were convicted and realized they sinned. They said, I have sinned against the Lord. David said, okay, there's gonna be consequences for your sin. The baby's gonna die. There's some other stuff that's gonna happen later. David prays and, and fasts and mourns and grieves, hoping that God would change his mind. He doesn't. And when the consequences are over, David gets up and moves on with his life. And God blesses him and his new family and his new baby. And there's really power in that. And I want you to know that today, that if you're here and you're living with regret from sins that you have repented of and left, no matter how bad it is, no matter how bad the consequences, no matter what you're dealing with, I want you to know that you still may have to deal with some consequences, but God has great plans for your life. He's blessing your life. He wants you to move on and stop living in regret of the past. All right? Stop living in regret of the past. So once you repent, there's no need for regret. I'm a little fired up. I'm kind of yelling a little bit. All right. Two questions, two questions, all right? Let's send with two questions, we're out of time. Two questions. Maybe you wanna write these down and think about them this week. First question is this. Is the sin in my life much different from the sin that was in my life 5, 10, 15 years ago? 
is the sin that's currently in my life much different from the sin that was in my life 5, 10, 15 years ago? You're going to have sin in your life. You're going to have some sin in your life. I want you to know that. But is it any different? Is it less speed, less regularity? Like it, or can you look back and say, you know what? I found victory over some things in my life. I found freedom over some things in my life. I've been clean for this long. I'm not doing that anymore, whatever it is. And I, now I got a whole new set of sins that I'm dealing with, and that's understandable. But this is not the sins of five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago, or at least it's not as much. If the answer is no, okay, if the sin in your life is not much different than the sin that was there 5, 15, 5, 10, 15 years ago, it could be, maybe, probably is the fact that you, you don't really believe that God's ways are the best way and that you probably are not actually sorry for what you're doing and you don't want to turn from that sin. You don't want to go to hell, which is understandable, but you don't really want to, to give up what you believe to be the best way to live life. That's the first question. Second question. If I knew I could do whatever I wanted and could get away with it with no consequences, would I still do it? If I knew I could do whatever I wanted and could get away with it with no consequences, would I still do it? Would I take that money from work? Would I have that relationship with that person? Would I privately do those things that I'm doing? If, 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 I, if I could take revenge and nobody would know it was me, like if I could do whatever I wanted and could get away with it with no consequences, would I still do it? Let me put it another way. If my, is my actions based on a love for God and a trust that his ways are the best ways or are my actions based out of a fear of consequences? Here's what I want you to know. God has incredible plans for your life. God has incredible plans for your life. But like Israel, he wants you to put down your sin Put down your idols so that you can grab hold of what he has for you. Put down your sin, put down your idols, and embrace the incredible life that God has for you. Let's don't waste our life struggling with the same sins for 25 years, not because we couldn't find freedom, but because we weren't sure if we wanted to find freedom from it. Because God's ways are the best way to have the best life. Let's pray.